young lady who was having a dreadful day uh, when the telephone rang and a kindly voice said, Hello, sweetheart, how are you doing? How's your day? And this young lady burst into tears and she said, Oh, mom, I'm having a terrible day. The baby won't eat a thing. The washing machine broke down. I have a pile of dirty laundry. I haven't had a chance to go shopping. On top of that, I've just tripped over one of the kids' toys and sprained my ankle. I'm hobbling around. The house is a mess, and I'm having two couples from the church around for dinner. What am I going to do? The mom said, don't worry about a thing. Make yourself a cup of tea. Sit down. Relax. Close your eyes. I'll be there in half an hour. I'll do the shopping, I'll clean up the house, cook the dinner for you, I'll feed the baby, I'll call my repairman to come and fix your washing machine. Now stop crying, I'll sort everything out. And this young lady said, oh mom, thanks so much. What would I do without you? Are you sure it's going to be okay with dad for you to come out? The mother said, what are you talking about, honey? You know dad's been dead for four years now. Is this 5310617? The young lady said, no, it's 0619. And the mother said, oh, sorry, I guess I've got the wrong number. There was a short pause, and then this young lady said, does this mean you're not coming over? (laughs) This morning I want to speak about what to do when you feel overwhelmed. When there's a huge problem or set of circumstances in front of you and you're not quite sure what to do, Bernadette, I presume that as you leave PBC and are sent out to take the role of pastor at Capricorn, that you might be feeling a little overwhelmed because no less a personage than the Apostle Paul, when speaking about pastoral ministry, said, who is equal to such a task? And all of us this morning have times when we're overwhelmed, if not by national or international events, then certainly with events in our own lives. And I want to look at this from the life of one particular man in the Old Testament, a man called Joshua. If you've got your Bibles with you, you might like to turn to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to look at the first two chapters. I'll tell the story, but we'll refer to some of the verses as we go along. In these two chapters, we read how this young man, Joshua, faced an overwhelming set of circumstances. We're going to have a look at what God told him to do in that situation, and then we're going to look at what he actually did and how this might apply in our own lives. So just to put the book of Joshua in context, you remember in the book of Genesis, God comes to one man, Abraham, and through Abraham forms this little nation of Israel, At the end of Genesis leading into Exodus, we read about this little nation in uh, captivity in Egypt and how God brings them out under Moses, and God saves them and then gives them his laws. Here's how you're to live in relationship with me. And the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy contain those laws and a bit more of the nation's history. But they also record how the people don't trust God. They come right to the very edge of the land that God has promised them. God sends out 12 spies into the land to check it out. You might remember the story from Numbers 13. Ten of the spies come back and say, there's no way we can go into the land. The people there are too big. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, those people are so big we just can't miss. 
But the voices of the ten spies prevail, and they say we can't enter the land. And God says, you're right, you won't enter. I'll let your children enter in. For 40 years, you'll wander around this desert until your bodies lie here in the sand, and then your children will go into the land. And that happens. That old generation die. Uh, Even Moses dies outside the land of Canaan. And now, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we read how God starts with a new generation, this time under the leadership of Joshua. So the book of Joshua begins on a really high note. This is a passage that's often preached when we set people aside for a particular task in his church. God says this to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. Such a wonderful passage at a commissioning service, also at a baptismal service, as people move uh, into a new situation. Uh, For Bernadette, you're about to cross the Jordan River, or at least the M5. (laughs) And it's an important message for all of us as we step out from Sunday over the Jordan into Monday. God says to us, I will be with you. But God's words, I will be with you, must actually have been very frightening to Joshua. You see, in the Bible, whenever God says, I will be with you, it means that something horrendous is about to happen. Like you're going to have to go up against the king of Egypt and try and let the Israelites go, as Moses did. Or that you're going to have to go up against the Midianites with only 300 men, as Gideon did. Or that you're going to have to evangelize the world, as the disciples were told to. Or that you're going to have to give birth to the Messiah, as Mary did. It's no wonder that we read in Luke chapter 1 that Mary was greatly troubled by the angel's message, the Lord is with you. She'd read the Old Testament. She knew that something very frightening was about to take place. Some of God's other words to Joshua are just as encouraging. God says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Great. Joshua had seen how God was with Moses. This means I'll be given impossible tasks to complete. I'll be ignored, whined at, misunderstood, almost stoned by the people. 
But God gives Joshua two very important commands in this passage, and they can be summarized in two sentences. Joshua is told to live in the light of God's promise and to live in the light of God's commands. Firstly, live in the light of God's promise. Verses 5 and 6. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Live in the light of my promise. And then secondly, live in obedience to God's commands. Verse 8. Do not let this book of the Lord depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Live in the light of my commands. Actually, that, law, that word law sounds uh, very legalistic, but it's, it's probably better translated God's rule for life. That's how the Israelites would have looked at it. Not something to restrict us or spoil our fun, but something to guide us, protect us, help us through life. As God says, so that you'll be prosperous and successful. So the, live in the light of God's promises. Live in the light of God's commands. Well, Joshua has only taken two steps as the new leader when he comes across an obstacle, the River Jordan. Now, this would have been quite an obstacle at any point, but we're particularly told in chapter 3 that the river is in flood. Not only that, but on the other side of the river, in the distance, Joshua can see the fortified city of Jericho. Joshua is about to face his first test And what does he do? Does he live in the light of God's promise and in the light of God's command? No, he doesn't. At the beginning of chapter 2, we read that Joshua sends two spies into the land of Canaan to go and check it out. And you can almost hear the uh, divine referee waving his red card. Joshua, what are you doing? Why are you sending spies into the land? God has just promised you that you're going to take the land Don't you remember what happened last time spies were sent into the land? We're told here that this is something that Joshua does, not that something God commands. So we know this is wrong. And there's another clue in the chapter that what Joshua is doing is wrong too, because we're told in chapter 2 that the spies set out from a place called Shetem. Now, that might not mean a lot to us, but the Israelites would have remembered this story. They were very familiar with Shetem from Numbers chapter 25. That's where the people engaged with sexual immorality with the Moabites, and 24,000 Israelites died as a result of prostitution and Baal worship. Shetem came to be associated with idolatry, sexual immorality, turning from God, And yet this is the very place from which Joshua sends out these spies. When it comes to the crunch, Joshua forgets what God has told him. We're going to see the consequences of that in a moment. I must say, that's just one of the reasons I love the Old Testament, though. It just speaks about real-life people who deal with a real-life God. And the writer's not ashamed to show us that Joshua blew it which is an encouragement to those of us 
who blow it occasionally too. But we're going to see the consequences of this disobedience. Joshua almost shipwrecks the whole plan. In verse 2, we read that two spies are sent out then, and they arrive at Jericho, probably looking like drowned rats, having crossed the Jordan River. And these spies are definitely not in the same class as James Bond, because the first thing that happens is they are rumbled by the king of Jericho's intelligence network. The second thing that happens is that these two young men decide a great place to start their investigations is the red light district of Jericho. Not sure how it happened, but they find themselves in a brothel owned by a lady called Rahab. Perhaps Jericho was like the Wild West, where the bar, the hotel, and the brothel were all the same place. Maybe it was just the first door that they knocked on. Maybe they're there for the usual reason. They've just spent 40 years in the desert. We're not told, but whatever the case... These two young Jewish men find themselves sat on Rahab's sofa surrounded by prostitutes. This is not a good place for two nice young Jewish boys to be. As one writer points out, they are in danger of losing a lot more than just their lives. And at that point, there's a knock on the door. It's the king's soldiers coming to look for them. And these guys know it's all over. They're going to be handed over to the authorities. But then the unexpected happens. Rahab hurries them up uh, to her roof, which in those days was the equivalent of the outhouse. It was where you left all your spare stuff that didn't fit in the house. She hides them underneath some flax that she's busy drying out, and then she goes back down to greet the soldiers, which must have been a very amusing scene. Hi, guys. What can I do for you? Uh, Won't you lay down your arms and surrender to mine? Oh, you're on duty. What a pity. (laughs) Yes, there were some spies here, but they've long gone. I think they slipped out of the city before the, uh, the gate shut. If you hurry, you'll catch them. And as they hurry away, Rahab goes back upstairs to check on the spies. And what happens? Do these two Jewish men speak to her about God? Do they share their testimony? Well, no. Actually, Rahab tells them about God. These men have disregarded God. They're not living in the light of God's promise or in the light of his commands. But this foreigner, who isn't just a foreigner but a prostitute to boot, starts to talk to them about God. In chapter 2, I know that Yahweh has given this land to you. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage fails because of you. For Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Which isn't the kind of thing that you expect a prostitute to say. I think this is a real encouragement to us when we share our faith with others. It's not up to God. God's already working in that person's life long before we speak up. Our task is to remain faithful and pray for that person. Ask God to give us opportunities to speak. And when we do speak, 
we discover that God has been there way ahead of us, and they're waiting to hear uh, from Him through us. Let's just pause and think about this lady Rahab for a moment. I think we sometimes have a distorted picture of who prostitutes are. They're often very desperate people. They're people whose society fails, uses, and then despises. And in one sense, it's no wonder that Rahab changes sides and decides to follow the God of Israel. C.S. Lewis once wrote that prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. Rahab knows enough about the history of Israel to know that Israel's God is a God who reaches out to the poor and the marginalized and the despised. Yahweh is her kind of God. And when Jesus was on earth as God, he exuded the same love and respect and care for the marginalized, so that the prostitutes flocked to Jesus. Jesus based his whole ministry on the Old Testament and God's care for the poor and little. You could say it was in his blood. You see, one of his ancestors had been a prostitute. That this very same lady Rahab. If you have a look at Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that a scarlet thread links Rahab to Jesus. Rahab was the great, 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 great grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the message from Rahab's life is that no one is beyond God's grace. God could welcome this foreigner, this prostitute, into his special people and in fact include her in the ancestry of his son. Then he'll welcome you and he'll welcome me if we turn to him as Rahab did. Well, having helped the spies, Rahab now asks for their help. She says to them, when you come and attack this city and you destroy it, as you surely will, then please spare me and my family. And the spies say, well, take this red cord and tie it in your window and we'll spare your house and everyone in it. I think it's fascinating that it's a red cord. Just like years earlier, it was the red blood on the door frames of the houses that saved the Israelites. Just like for us, it's the red blood of Jesus that covers our sins. And you know the rest of the story. Rahab lets the spies out of her window, which just happens to be in the city wall, and they escape from Jericho. And so the spies come back to Joshua at the end of chapter 2 with their full report. And you can imagine uh, the scene, Joshua asking them, where is your map of Canaan? Well, we didn't have time to make one before leaving Rahab's house. Who's Rahab, the wife of one of the officers? Now, actually, she's a prostitute, which must have raised a few eyebrows. All right, then, where is the schematic drawing of Jericho, complete with the location of key ramparts and the structure of the gate? Well, that wasn't the part of the city that we investigated. All right, then, what is the number of troops in Jericho's standing army? We don't know that either. Well, what do you have to report? That all the people are melting in fear of us because the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. Which wasn't quite the report that Joshua expected, but actually was a report that was more than enough. It was what he needed. That God is faithful to his promises, even when we are faithless. And the simple question for us this morning is, 
what do we do when we're faced by a river? I don't know what rivers you might be facing in your life this morning. Each of us come from very different circumstances. Perhaps your river is an illness or a loved one who's ill. Perhaps your river is a temptation to do something that actually you know deep inside will displease God. As we each stand at our personal rivers this morning, as we stand at the edge of a river in our country and our world, God comes to us and his call is the same as it was for Joshua. Live in the light of my promise. Live in the light of my commands. Just consider a couple of God's promises that maybe we need to hear. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe it's the comfort that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Or perhaps like Rahab, you want to turn to God for the very first time this morning. You need to hear his promise, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Live in the light of my promise. And then at the same time, I don't know what command we might be needing to obey this morning. Perhaps the command to remain faithful to your spouse. Perhaps the command to forgive someone. Perhaps the command to restore a broken relationship. Maybe the command not to fear as you enter a new sphere of ministry or as you're called to minister in a difficult situation. Maybe the command not to let material things consume you. Whatever it is, God says, live in the light of my commands because it's the very best for you. So as we close, let's simply pause and ask God to give us the strength to do all that he's calling on us to do.